When Ellen and I were first married, I discovered that I had a lot to learn. Yes, there was the quintessential lesson about which way the toilet paper goes on the roll, but, but there were other lessons as well. Uh, I quickly learned that Ellen does not like to be sung to first thing in the morning. So I had to learn to keep my rise and shine on the inside. Uh, I also learned that if I tried to engage a topic that was even slightly controversial or serious after about 6.30 p.m., I did so at my own peril. Walking into the bedroom and starting anything with a sentence, honey, what do you think about, would be like waltzing into the den of a she-bear. Now, in her defense, some of you all have lived a charmed life. Some of you can drink four cups of coffee at 9 p.m., lean up against a wall, and still fall fast asleep. And to you, I say, bless your little hearts. But for the rest of us, we know that if a certain kind of idea or thought can make its way into our minds after sunset, then that idea will set a mental freight train in motion. And once that train has left the station, it is very difficult to stop. And when you've got a train like that roaring down the tracks of your mind, you can just kiss a good night of sleep goodbye. So knowing this about ourselves, we, we try to build up a defense to keep those ideas out so that we can get a good night of sleep. I've actually coined a little phrase for this uh, syndrome. I call it the all I want is a good night of sleep syndrome. That is our tendency to hold at arm's length any thoughts or ideas that might upset our emotional or, or mental equilibrium and thereby keep us up at night. Well, friends, today's parable brings us face to face with a topic that I would dare not broach with my beloved bride after sunset. Because it's a parable about God's judgment in hell. Flames of fire, torment, and a chasm fixed. These are not the sorts of images that on the face of it would promote a good night of sleep. But if we will let our guard down just for a moment and draw close to this teaching of our Lord about hell and judgment, what we will discover is that it has a way of revealing where we place our trust. It will teach us something about how our hearts work and it will bring us face to face with the loving provision of God. Those of you who are familiar with the teachings of pastor and author Tim Keller will recognize some of his teachings woven all throughout this sermon. But whenever he's teaching on this parable, Pastor Keller likes to relay a story of, of a conversation he has had many, many times with parishioners. Parishioners will come up to him and say, Pastor Keller, um, what do you believe about hell? And he'll sort of Consider for a moment and say, well, I, I'm fairly certain that the image of fire is probably metaphorical. To which the parishioner says, whew, thank God. But then he continues. He says, yes, it's probably metaphorical for something infinitely worse than fire. The parishioner kind of, oh. If I handed you all an index card as you walked in this morning, and if I'd asked you to write down your answer to the question, what do you believe about hell? My hunch is that we would have gotten a whole variety of answers, but some of you would have written something along the lines of, as a Christian who believes in a God of love, I cannot believe that hell is real. I cannot reconcile a God of love 
and the existence of hell. That may be where some of you all are this morning. And on a certain level, we can understand the appeal of that sentiment because if hell is real and if we take it seriously, well, then its existence has the potential to keep us from ever getting a good night of sleep. And so we have to acknowledge that there is enormous psychological and emotional pressure to keep the idea of God's judgment and hell at arm's length. Again, if hell is real and if there are people in it, then all of a sudden its existence raises questions about people whom we love. And worrying about people we love is, well, it's not a good formula for a good night of sleep. And yet as Christians, we also have to come to grips with the fact that no figure in the Bible, from Moses to Abraham, from Peter to Paul, has had more to say about God's judgment in hell than the Lord of love himself, Jesus Christ. I'll just read a quick sample. Mark 9, 47. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 13, 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here in Luke chapter 16, where the rich man cries out from Hades, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. See, these teachings of Jesus, they have a way of kind of forcing our hand. If we say, I cannot believe a God of love would allow anyone to spend eternity in hell, what are we saying? Are we saying that we understand the Father's heart better than Jesus? Are we saying that we understand the nature of love and justice better than Jesus? Are we saying that we understand spiritual matters and the nature of our own hearts better than Jesus. Now to be clear, part of the problem is that the popular understanding of hell does not always square up with the biblical teaching of hell. In other words, sometimes the hell that people reject is actually not the hell of the Bible, and I hope to bring some clarity to that in just a moment. But before we can even enter into the parable, we have to stand here at the threshold and acknowledge what the possibility of hell reveals about what we actually trust. Are we going to trust the stories that we tell ourselves so that we can get a good night of sleep? Or are we committed to trusting Christ? Trusting that if his word says both God is love and hell is real, then even if we can't see how they fit together, if he says they fit together, then somehow they fit together. Friends, where, where are you this morning? Jesus teaches us that God is love and hell is real. Are you willing to trust him in this, even if you can't see it for yourself? So our Lord's teaching on judgment and hell, it has a way of revealing where we have placed our trust. And I pray that you place your trust in Christ and in his word. Well, as we begin to step into the parable, we discover that it also sheds light on our own hearts and how they work. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
This parable has a very interesting and unique feature. It is the only one of Jesus' parables where he uses a proper name. The rich man has no name, but the poor man is named Lazarus, whose name literally means God is my helper. Now, what is Jesus doing with this contrast? He's explaining that our identity is shaped by what we love. The rich man's identity was rooted in his love of wealth. Which means that once he died, he had to leave behind the one thing he had been basing his whole identity upon. And so in the life hereafter, he had no identity. He was eternally nameless. It's kind of spooky if you think about it. Lazarus, on the other hand, had rooted his identity in God. How do we know this? We know this because of the proper name that Jesus gave to him. Lazarus, God is my helper. And so Lazarus, who has based his identity on God, he still has an identity in heaven. He is Lazarus. Friends, what we ultimately love Whatever we embrace or pursue as our source of, of significance or security or hope, God, wealth, power, prestige, our children, what we ultimately love forms our identity over time. And this difference of identity is what determines where we go after death. The poor man in paradise with Abraham, the rich man in hell. Let me put it another way. Someone reading this parable might well ask, well, is the point of the parable that God is, is punishing the rich man because he wasn't generous? And the answer is no, it's, it's actually the other way around. The rich man's lack of generosity was not the reason he went to hell, it was the symptom that he was going to hell. The rich man's lack of generosity revealed what he loved. And what did he love? He loved his wealth. And what he loved shaped his identity, and it's this identity that set his eternal destiny. That's what this parable is all about, the eternal consequence of what we love. But you might well ask, well, well why does what we love set the course for our eternal destiny? And friends, the answer is because that's how our hearts work. I'll explain it this way. When I was in seminary, I had a particular class that was taught by a professor who had been a parish priest for many, many years. It was a class kind of on the, on the practical things that you'll encounter um, as a minister. And I remember one particular class, our uh, professor saying to us, now, whenever you've got someone who comes into your office for any kind of pastoral care, he said the vast majority of the time, three-quarters of the time, two-thirds of the time, I can't remember what the fraction was, some big fraction. The vast majority of the time, somewhere in that parishioner's life is going to be someone who's addicted to something. Could be alcohol, could be drugs, could be gambling, and so on. Now, at the time, I remember, you know, sitting in my chair there and just thinking, oh, come on, he's exaggerating. There's no way that it's that common. But I can tell you, after 20 years of ordained ministry, he was right. Most of us here this morning, we have all experienced firsthand, secondhand, maybe thirdhand, the immense pain, the immense pain 
of seeing how addiction can destroy a person's life. And this devastating process of addiction, and, and it's hard to enter into this because it's painful, but, but this process of addiction, it gives us a picture of what is true for all of us in the spiritual realm. So we need to understand it. First, addiction is like a consuming fire. When a person is addicted, he needs more and more of the substance to get the desired result. So that over time, the substance and his desire for it, it becomes like a fire which begins to consume everything in his life. It consumes his joy. It consumes his mind and his motivation. It consumes his physical body. And yes, it consumes his very identity. He's not the same person he used to be. Addiction is like a fire consuming its fuel. And it's hell. Well, the rich man's love of wealth had the exact same consuming effect on his immortal soul. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Furthermore, addiction causes isolation. As the addict begins to choose the substance over and above the persons whom he loves, he begins to say things like, nobody understands me. Everyone's against me. I'm not the one with the problem. They are. There begins to become a great chasm fixed between the addict and everyone else around him. Well, in the same way, our misplaced love begins to cut a chasm between us and God. Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish and besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. So there's a consuming fire. There's an isolating chasm. And what follows is distorted thinking and denial. Note how this rich man... He's in hell, but he still thinks that he's in his palace. He's trying to, to boss everyone around. It's unreal. He begins to try to direct Abraham to tell Lazarus what to do, and he's so out of touch with reality and the hell that he's in, he doesn't even have the decency to speak to Lazarus directly. He's telling Abraham to give orders to Lazarus, so he's saying, hey, Abraham, tell Lazarus to do this, tell Lazarus to do that. If you've ever dealt with a person who is in the throes of addiction, you know how distorted and mixed up their thinking can become. And eventually this denial, it, it begins to, to lead the person into the blame game. When the rich man sees that he's not getting anywhere trying to boss Abraham, to boss Lazarus around, he switches his tactics and he begins to blame God. Then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Translation. God, if you'd done a better job of explaining things to me, I wouldn't be in this mess. So you need to up your game, go to my brothers, and, and give them the real story, and they'll believe. This guy is unreal. Well, when we are confronted with the reality of God's judgment in hell, we, we too can begin to try and lay blame. God, you should make a way for your people out of the bondage of hell. I did. 
God, you, you should wake a, make a way for your people to be forgiven of their sin. I did. Well, God, you should meet us here on earth and, and, and speak to us in a way that we can understand. I did. So there's the consuming fire. There's the isolating chasm. There is denial and blame. But there's one more thing that you need to understand about addiction, which applies as well to our spiritual state, to the way that our hearts work. Addiction is a kind of bondage, yes. But the prison door is locked from the inside. Note that the rich man, he's not even trying to get out of hell. He's trying to get Lazarus into it. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus down here to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Friends, you see, the rich man's lifetime of loving his wealth had so shaped his heart in such a way that he would rather, to paraphrase Milton, rule in hell than serve in heaven. He would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. Now there might be part of you, a visceral response that says, no, no, who in their right mind would choose to be in hell? That's crazy. But friends, to you, I would respond, just look around you. There are countless persons who are choosing right now the hell of addiction. Yes, the addict is locked up in the prison of his addiction. Yes, the rich man is locked up in the eternal prison of hell. But the vexing thing about both is that the door is locked from the inside. Now, this is a difficult truth for us to face about ourselves. It's not particularly flattering. It hurts our ego to think that our hearts would work this way. But it's true. Some people imagine that hell is a place of torment where God is throwing people in and holding the door closed and they're crying out, please, please let me out. And God's saying, oh no, I will not let you out. That's not what hell is like at all. Hell is a prison where the prisoners have locked themselves in because they do not want to leave. And just as an addict will come to the point where he has become so consumed by the object of his addiction that he can no longer conceive of a life without it, hell is filled with persons who have been so consumed by the things they loved on earth that they cannot conceive of living a life of total devotion to God. And so they lock themselves in. Heaven is people saying, Lord, I love you, thy will be done. Hell is God saying, I will not force you to love me. Thy will be done. Friends, if you don't believe it's true, I, I challenge you to speak to an addict who's in recovery and they will tell you, yes, my, my addiction was bondage, but the door was locked from the inside. I was the only one who could unlock it and only then when I turned to God and asked for his help. Friends, where is your heart fixed today? Really, what has your heart embraced as your source of significance and security and hope? Well, our Lord's teaching on judgment and hell, it sheds light on what we actually trust. 
It sheds light on the spiritual truth that what, our, what we love shapes our identity and that our identity determines our eternal life and future. And finally, our Lord's teaching on judgment and hell sheds light on God's loving provision. This last point's the most important and it's, it's the quickest one to profess because it's the good news. God's heart is that you would be with Abraham. God's heart is that you would be with Lazarus. God's heart is that you would be with Jesus for eternity. And the good news is that no one, no one who would ever wish for or want God's forgiveness will be turned away. No one who would ever wish for or want for faith in Christ will ever be turned away. No one who would ever wish for or want a relationship with the Father will be turned away. In the words of that great old hymn that we'll sing in a moment, put it, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Friends, throughout our lives, we will be constantly tempted to place our ultimate love and therefore our identity in all manner of things apart from God. Our wealth, our career, success, popularity, yes, even our children. But if we will only ask God's Holy Spirit to come in, it will be his delight to show us where we have set a little fire burning by our misplaced love. And it will be his delight to show us how to blow those consuming flames out and return our hearts to him. It was too late for the rich man. It's not too late for us. For us, God still stands with his arms outstretched. May you turn to him and have yourself enfolded in those arms. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, grant us the grace of trust. Trust to embrace your word to us that our God is a God of love and that hell is very real. Show us, we pray, the truth about our own hearts. Deceive the grave importance of turning our hearts to you. Thank you for your promise never to turn away those who truly seek you. Reveal our misplaced affections and return us to you. For we ask these things in your precious and powerful name. Amen.